You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. As I'm sure you all know by now, we had no podcast last week. It was a crazy weird Christmas, wasn't it? I mean, for all of us, I'm sure, but no less frantic for me. In fact, it was probably even a bit more frantic than normal. Uh, With our family gatherings being so much smaller this year, one of the consequences that I really didn't think of was everyone would be sending their gifts for my five-year-old to me, unwrapped, direct from Amazon or wherever they bought it, which means, basically, I've never wrapped so many presents in my entire life. (laughs) Anyway, with the holidays behind us... uh, We're going to discuss both episodes seven and eight of The Curse of Oak Island in today's podcast. But before we do that, of course, my favorite part of the show, we have some listener emails to answer. Our first one comes from our friend Peter who writes, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) Sure, the lead cross is some kind of map key. First, lead is soft and bends easily, so it's not likely what you would choose to create a lasting clue to treasure. Second, if it was that important, Don't you think someone would guard it carefully and not just drop it on a beach? Third, if it was lost, wouldn't there be an exhaustive search until it was recovered? Almost every artwork and artifact has some kind of symmetrical geometry. Check enough lines and angles on enough trinkets, and something is bound to point to one of the many places on Oak Island with a mysterious feature. Okay. Let me interject a little bit here. Uh, I think I've made my thoughts clear on the lead cross and its role in this theory being presented by cartographer Aaron Helton over the past couple of weeks in the show. There are many reasons this theory makes no sense to me, but Peter certainly identified here three of the best reasons for sure. And let me also mention that since you brought up artwork here, yes, I have indeed been impressed with the work of Corey and Maul and Chris Morford for sure, especially when it comes to the lines they found uh, that seem to connect between Nolan's Cross, the Palace at Versailles, and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But before that information even made it to air, I was a bit dubious of what we heard before that, the whole Poussin painting theory, you know, that whole part of their work. And Peter, you nailed one of the exact reasons why. Let me put it this way. I'm by no means an artist, not by any means at all, (laughs) but uh, one of the venues that I work, because I'm a musician, is up in uh, this resort up in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. One On many nights, I pass by and chat a little bit with one of these fellow workers of mine doing his thing. He's an artist, and what he does is he teaches guests how to paint, and one of the things he always does is draw out angles and lines to use as a basis for their work. So Peter is exactly correct here. A lot of art, especially older portraits, are based heavily on geometry. And that geometry can certainly be manipulated and placed into a whole lot of contexts they were never intended to be placed on. Anyway, Peter continues. Instead of digging for treasure, this season it's all about mapping rocks. Also, who says the treasure sank? Did the toonie sink? Wasn't it found at the same depth? Really, these brilliant engineers could build a vault protected by an elaborate system of booby-trapped tunnels, but they weren't smart enough to put it where it wouldn't sink even further? Who would store anything valuable in an aquifer, especially the original manuscripts of Shakespeare? Folks, an aquifer is um, like a level of 
porous rocks underground that water can actually move through it. I had to look it up. Once again, listeners here are always smarter than the host. <laughs> That's for sure. And, uh, and Peter continues, and aren't they worried about uh, drilling a hole in the Ark of the Covenant? I think this season may be more about proving ships landed there than anything else. Okay, you got a couple of really kind of cool things in all of this. Um, your thought about drilling a hole into the Ark of the Covenant is exactly what my wife said to me way back when we were watching, you know, episode one of season one, all those years ago. I can picture her face, that look on her face now. as She turns to me and says something like, wait, they think there might be priceless religious artifacts down there and they're drilling a hole right through the middle of it. <laughs> does make you scratch your head you know anyway peter great email happy new year all the best to you um, let's move to eric on facebook who writes us last week and he wrote uh with the angles and drawings from the lead cross we have now crossed into dan brown historical conspiracy novel <laughs> or maybe an indiana jones movie how in the world did they never see that giant rock structure this is uh, eric you got a couple of two completely different things first um your idea of an indiana jones movie is a great one i mean can we all see rick placing the cross into some strange keyhole or something in an underground vault and then all of a sudden he has to run from a giant boulder now might be bad for rick for sure but it'd be great for ratings if nothing else uh now i was going to mention that very same thing regarding the rock structure you mentioned there later in the episode review section but let's touch on it briefly here anyway i think as viewers we don't get a very good idea of the scale here and where everything is sometimes. I understand at first glance this seems weird, that something like this would go completely unnoticed after all these years of searching on Oak Island. But you have to understand something. For centuries, no one really looked anywhere on the island besides the money pit in Smith's Cove. And for most of that time, they weren't allowed to because they'd be trespassing on private property. Why would anyone go over there into Lot 15? You can't get a plow through there or anything like that, so it's not something farmers or you know locals would do. If you think about it, it's really not that strange for a 140-acre island to not have every inch of it walked You know, at some point. My wife asked me this same question while we were watching the show, and, and I said to her, if there was a rock wall like this just 100 yards into the woods behind our house, We'd have no idea it was there. And I've lived in this house for decades. The woods are thick, and there's really no reason to ever go back there. But Eric, let me just say, you and my wife are not alone here in your thinking. I saw this very same question asked over and over again by fans on social media. Anyway, thank you for the message. Hope to hear from you again. Kelly on Facebook wrote simply, Do you know if anyone has located or looked into the valve marked on Zena Halpern's map? Kelly, as far as I know, they have not. No one has dug or looked over there um, up to this point. If you look at Zena's map, the valve is it could be perhaps on lot five, which I think is the last lot not owned by the Laginas or somebody involved in the show, the Nolans or whoever. Either way, it's on the opposite side of all the searching activity, which we already mentioned. I mean, this is this is not a small island, and people search in certain areas and other places just don't get looked at. But more importantly, keep in mind that this map of Xena's was discovered less than 10 years ago. We're going to talk more about it later. So this is a relatively new thing for Oak Island. So not all the places and spots have been looked at. But hang tight. Looks like we're going to be discussing this map a lot over the coming weeks. Who knows? Maybe somebody will look at the valve. We'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll just wait and see. 
Okay, let's finish off with Matt in Pennsylvania who writes, and it's a long one. Hey, Dave. Well, it was bound to happen. I totally disagree with your take on the magical line that connects the Palace of Versailles and Jerusalem. The researchers who discovered this line are basing a lot of the findings on marking X's on an island based on Nicholas Poussin's famous painting, The Arcadian Shepherds, painted somewhere between 1637 and 1638. They claim that Nolan's cross directly corresponds to angles and lines taken straight from the painting, and Nolan's cross has direct line ties to Versailles through a symbolic line that connects the cross to the palace gates and the ruins of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. Sorry, but this doesn't work. The Versailles that existed when Poussin was painting and when the Arcadian Shepherds was created was a small hunting lodge with absolutely no historical significance whatsoever. The Versailles that we know today was completely redesigned and rebuilt by Louis XIV throughout the 1660s. Poussin died in 1665. When Poussin died, there was no one living in Versailles, and the grand entrance and roads leading to the palace were just lines on an architect's paper. The investigators were drawing lines on Versailles, making an argument that the design of the roads leading into the palace resemble a menorah and were symbolically connected to the Knights Templar in Jerusalem. That is completely and absolutely ridiculous. The roads leading to Versailles were created to converge to the main entrance of the palace to demonstrate the importance of the king as Louis XIV used the palace to bring nobles away from Paris and establish a court that consolidated and strengthened his power. While Louis XIV did persecute Protestants in France during his reign, he was not particularly devoted to Catholicism and has absolutely no ties at all with the Knights Templar. I really think the researchers who are looking into the Nolan's Cross, Versailles, Jerusalem theory are way off base. I think the X's they draw on Oak Island are arbitrary and completely based on coincidences that and connections that have no basis in historical fact or reality. Sorry, the history just doesn't work. Last point, I really enjoy your podcast and know that you work very hard on it. Um, thanks for the good, keep up the good work. Matt from Havertown, PA. Uh, Matt also suggested I do a Patreon. I've been thinking about that. Anybody have any ideas on that? Let me know. Uh, anyway, well, Matt, I am, as I say uh, all the time here with alarming frequency, not an expert, especially on this theory, which is clearly only trickling out to us kind of drip by drip as the showrunners dangle it over us like the perfect carrot in front of a hungry horse. But I will say... Right off the top, I noticed there were a couple of issues with your email that I kind of immediately recognized. So instead of trying to pose as the expert here and argue with you, I reached out to Corey and Maul, the actual expert, and sent him your email. He quickly and generously offered up his time and gave me the following response. Now, before I read that, um, let me tell you something, folks. Corey and Maul is an incredibly good guy, always willing to talk and offer up his time for this podcast. I'm saying this particularly for anyone who decides it's a good idea to insult people they see on TV as if they're not real people. Uh, Corian, like so many others I've come across while making this podcast, is an incredibly down-to-earth and generous guy as well as talented and wickedly smart. So just keep that in mind when you're posting stuff. You know, keep it civil, that's all. Anyway, here is what he said. One. The alignments of Versailles have nothing to do with the shepherds of Arcadia. No idea where you heard of that. We certainly didn't claim that. We got led to Versailles through something to do with Poussin that nobody knows yet, as it hasn't been on TV, and might not be published at all by the producers. Two, Poussin's Shepherd of Arcadia was painted in 1655 to 1656, as concluded in the excellent research by Anthony Blunt. 
The link with Versailles is that Louis XIV bought Shepherds of Arcadia in 1685 after he had ordered a search for it by the Marquis de Louvois, I think I'm saying that right, to install it in his private apartment on the central axis of the menorah. Now, Louvois, if I'm not mistaken, was Louis XIV's Secretary of War. I'm not sure they called it that, but I think that's what basically how it <laughs> kind of translates into modern political culture. Anyway, uh, Corian continues. Three. We nowhere claim the angles of Nolan's cross are related to the painting. They aren't. Four, the central axis of Versailles was laid out in 1631 and didn't move an inch when Louis XIII created the biggest royal domain in the world. He didn't rebuild it. He enveloped it. And he put that in quotes. With the help of architect Louvau. Louvau. I think I'm saying that right. I'm terrible with French names. Really need a Canadian to help me here. Anyway, the actual hunting lodge Louis XIII turned into a small chateau is still at the heart of the current palace. If you go up to the attic, you can see its original walls behind the plaster where Laval extended them. On maps of the, 13, of the 1631 chateau, you see the same central axis of the domain as today. Five, the works at Versailles to change Louis XIII's small chateau into what it is today, started in 1661, and Louis XIV spent most of his time there, not to mention more than 10,000 workers. Number six. We don't say anywhere that the roads into the palace resemble a menorah. We stated the main paths of the whole domain form a menorah, whether we like it or not. The question is, was there intent? We think there was. By the way, the three roads leading to the main gate of the chateau form a perfect 60-degree triangle cut in half, making a fitting tripod for the three-mile menorah that is sitting on top of it. It's no coincidence this triangle is 60 degrees. You can ask any mason what the significance is. 7. Nowhere have we made a link between the Knights Templar and Louis XIV. They disappeared from France after 1308. You might be interested to know that their successors, the Hospitallers, today's Knights of Malta, were about the only foreign entity in Europe that Louis XIV never quarreled with. He used their navy, and many of their ranks got leadership positions in French government and army. The Bourbons did have a more than average interest in the Crusades. Unfortunately, the producers of the show step over such subtleties. If you would like to know where many of the Templars went after they heard their brothers were arrested in droves, I advise everyone to read the word-by-word -word minutes of the 1308-1309 Templar Inquisition trials in Holyrood, Scotland. You can find them on the internet, and they are quite revealing. Number eight. I only got two more left. The alignment of Versailles' central axis with the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is a fact. Again, whether you like it or not. Hundreds of people have succeeded in reproducing it on Facebook, including some GIS experts by now, and mail me about it all the time. There is no doubt in my mind this alignment was intentionally made, as I explained in the FAQ you recently read on your podcast, which I think was the last show we did. The alignment of Nolan's cross with the main axis of Versailles is off by under a degree, as you can see on the show. Can't say anything about it until the season's over. Nine, especially towards the end of his life, Louis XIV did become a very devout Catholic under the influence of Madame de Maintenon, who he secretly married. I'm sure I'm butchering that name, but that's what it feels like to me. Anyway, so that's, that's what Corian wrote us. My job, folks, as I see it here, is not only to get Corian Mall on the show after this season wraps to talk about all this, because it'd just be easier then when he doesn't have to defer things to what may or may not be shown. 
But um, I'm starting to think we might need to do like sort of an entire series of podcasts just to get beneath the surface of all this guy knows about these subjects. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you so much for the email, Matt. I hope this answers it for you. And my thanks once again to Corian for his response. But really, my heartfelt thanks to the both of you for taking the time out of your days to make this podcast a better podcast, which is what you both did here, really. I'm just a dictator of all this. I'm just a person who's not really very good at reading at all. <laughs> the smart people were the writers of all this. Anyway, don't forget, if you would like to send me an email for us to discuss in a future podcast, just send it along to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Now, let's talk about Season 8, Episode 7 of The Curse of Oak Island called Mounding Evidence. Mounding with a D, of course. I wish I knew who decided that a bad pun was required for naming these episodes. Anyway, this is going to be a quick review of this episode, not because I'm trying to squeeze two <laughs> show episodes into one podcast here, but because let's face it, there really wasn't all that much new to talk about in this episode anyway. The episode begins over at the Money Pit area where geologist Terry Matheson and historian Charles Barkhouse have been heading up the drilling project over there, sort of overseeing it. Now, in each of the last few episodes, we just have these sort of checked in with <laughs> the Money Pit here, but we really, it's, it's not much more than that. It's not much more than just these sort of quote unquote checking in scenes. And we have another one of those here. Terry reports that somewhere between 179 feet and 208 feet, they're finding very loose material instead of bedrock. He calls it... Uh, Quote, the closest you'll come to a true void, end quote. And someone notes this loose material could have, quote unquote, caused the collapse, referring to the famous uh, collapse of the money pit from back in the mid-1800s. Then we hear them call this, quote, proof positive stuff's moving around down there, end quote. Again, the show leaves out a lot of details, but I'm going to take Terry's um, opinion on this, uh, certainly moving forward. So for those questions about stuff moving around, I still don't know if it sank, but certainly moved, um, you know, horizontally. So now what we can perhaps glean from this is rather than looking for treasure with this project, what they're doing is trying to figure out whether things are really moving around down there, which they almost certainly are, but also how far they're moving and in what direction, right? For now, what we're seeing is, you know, nothing but dirt coming up. And the show is certainly not doing a very good job of giving us viewers a good perspective or kind of an idea of exactly where this is all taking place with regards to, you know, other spots already searched in the Money Pit area. My feeling is that despite the lack of anything really happening so far this year over at the Money Pit, perhaps they keep going back to it because sooner or later in this season, they might, the focus of it all might shift somewhere, somehow back over to the Money Pit. Only time will tell on that. And this entire project is going to uh, shift a bit in the next episode anyway, so just hang on. Okay, let's head over to the western side of the swamp where Gary Trayton is metal detecting over around the target, presented by the aforementioned theorists Corey Mall and Chris Morford. Gary finds a total of, I think, just in this one scene, like four ox shoes, which brings something like the cumulative number of ox shoes found in Oak Island to, in 2020 to somewhere near seven or more, I think. Gary says from the size of the shoes, they appear to be British in origin. I don't know if that's true or not. And he also claims they all line up somewhat kind of, you know, where they've been found. And then that indicates that there was a kind of an old ox trail used maybe centuries ago. He later finds an iron pin, which he compares to the same 
same looking kind of pin that they found a couple of seasons, a couple of episodes back, which uh, if you remember, they went up to blacksmithing ex- expert Carmen Legg and he uh, said it was from uh, kind of an ornamental pin from an old British military card. There's no follow up on that pin uh, done during the show um, or in the next show for that matter. So who knows? Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Uh, farmers have farmed the land on Oak Island for decades and decades, for centuries. We know this for sure. Until I see something here that makes me think these ox shoes are anything more than just evidence of that farming history, I'm simply not going to get too excited about them. Or for that matter, spend too much time on it here either. A couple of weeks ago, we saw diver Tony Sampson take the swamp doctor, Ian Spooner of Acadia University, on a little cruise around Oak Island on his pontoon boat. They were doing a sonar survey of the ocean floor just offshore, and in this episode, Tony's back, along with Alex Lagina, Jack Begley, and Peter Fernetti, to dive on two targets of interest the sonar data found for them. One target was on the northern side of the island, just off what is called the Boulderless Beach. We explained all that in the last episode. While the other target was on the opposite side of the island, just offshore from the swamp. They begin on the north side, with Tony and Alex doing the diving. Tony brings down with him a metal detector, and as the guys begin their descent, uh, the winds kind of kick up, and the weather starts making visibility, and really the dive itself, very difficult. Now, anybody who's been on the water in the, in the North Atlantic knows this can happen really at any moment. It happens all the time. Tony says his metal detector was, quote, unquote, going nuts. And later, he says in the war room to Rick and Marty that uh, these hits he was getting indicated a kind of a broad area of potential metal targets, as opposed to, like, from what I got out of this, opposed to one big metal target. The problem is, we couldn't really see what was causing these hits. Also, another even bigger problem is the Canadian government prohibits them from digging into the ocean floor and bringing up whatever material they might find down there. They'll have to get permits for this work, and who knows if and when that might happen. It's a totally different thing from the work they do on the island. This is certainly interesting, though. Hopefully, even without the permits, the divers can go back down during better weather and maybe perhaps find something to point them towards what this all might have been. So they go over to the southern side of the island, and Tony, the more experienced of the divers of the two divers, is now diving alone. Again, this is due to the weather conditions that kind of kicked up on them. What he sees here, he calls, quote-unquote, rocks in a square, which is kind of what they expected to find because the, sh- the sonar showed some square-shaped anomaly. So there really wasn't much learned here other than Tony kind of got eyes on it. Perhaps they can go back again to this in the future when they have better visibility and all that. But like I always like to remind you guys, if they don't go back here, if they don't do more work on this, we all know why. And we finish off this episode at a new search site, one we talked about briefly in the email section, so let's talk about it more here. Doug Kroll has called Rick, Marty, and Dan Hensky over to the research center to tell him about something he, I guess we could say, discovered. While wandering around over on Lot 15, over by the side of this pine tar kiln, Doug found a strange-looking rock formation, which he says is, I think I got this right, at the highest point of elevation on all of Oak Island. Maybe I misinterpreted what he said, but that seemed to be what he said. He shows the guy some images he took uh, of this little formation, I guess we'd call it. And at first blush, it really didn't look all that interesting to me, really, you know. But that's going to change when he takes Rick, Marty, and the team out to have a firsthand look at whatever this is. Now, after getting a better look at this, I can say it is without doubt a strange looking feature. 
At first, it seems like it could be just something natural. Weird, but natural. Then as we see more and more images, it starts to look like an area where maybe someone was doing some digging, and and this is where they dumped the, the spoils as they were digging. And now there are plenty such piles of dirt and rock all over Oak Island, especially this side of the island. I think Doug Kroll says it could be a quote-unquote bulldozer push. Rick points out that Robert Dunfield worked pretty close to this area, and Lord knows Dunfield dug and dumped and pushed around plenty of rocks in his day on Oak Island. Honestly, I was ready to chalk this all up to just another sign of maybe more undocumented searcher work, and that very well may be what we are looking at here in the long run. But as the camera starts panning out and you get a kind of an even wider look at this thing, you can see it's kind of long and thin, almost like an ancient, I don't I hate to say this because now I sound like the narrator, but almost like one of those sort of ancient brick uh, rock walls that you see. I, uh, later on, Laird Niven says we see something like this in Europe, and he's right. You see these kind of things, these sort of old rock walls, and certainly not like something that we would expect to call a spoils pile or a bulldozer push or whatever they called it. Marty then says this very strange thing. I'm going to digress here for a second. He says the first step is to get Gary Drayton up here to metal detect. And then the second step would be to, quote, get those dreaded archaeologists up here, see if they can see something. (laughs) Now, this might be nothing, but dreaded archaeologists? Really? Dreaded? Now, I think what he means is when you get the archaeologists involved, you can't just excavate and bulldoze whatever you want it takes time for them to do what they want and they kind of do it slowly and methodically but man dreaded i don't know that's just kind of threw me a little bit anyway let's go back to it in the next scene from this location the dreaded archaeologists have indeed arrived and aaron taylor compares what he sees here with something called the serpent mounds of ontario so what is that okay about 50 miles northeast of toronto just short of halfway between toronto and ottawa it is a town called Keene, Ontario. It's on the shores of Rice Lake where there is a where sits a former site of a old national park called Serpent's Mound Park. I don't think it's still a national park, though. The namesake feature of this park is an ancient native burial site shaped like an earthen snake. First discovered in the 1890s, I think, which dates back to nearly, I don't know, something like 2,500 years It is, apparently, six different burial sites. And now that I think of it, I think that's what was discovered in 1890, that they were burial sites. (laughs) I don't don't think that the—I think the um, formation was discovered much much earlier than that. Together, they form this nearly 200-foot-long serpentine formation that measures about 25 feet wide and around 4 to 5 feet high. They're also completely covered in grass and have a gorgeous view of the lake. I mean, whoever was buried here was buried in style, folks. Now, it's hard for me to argue with Taylor's conclusion here as he's getting a far better view of what this all looks like than we are in these camera shots. Could this new feature be an ancient burial site for the local First Nations people? I don't know. I mean, it seems unlikely such a thing is only being discovered now, but it certainly is possible as, you know, anything involving the Knights Templar, I guess. The archaeologists seem to all agree with me that it doesn't look like a bulldozer push or a spoils pile. Taylor points out, quote, if it was just a clearing, why cover it with dirt, end quote, which is true. It's all covered up. And Liz Michael is another uh, archaeologist who's on the scene, says, quote, the structure is odd for a spoils pile, end quote. And let's face it, they're right. Doug Crow points out that the whole thing is probably about 130 feet long. I mean, add to that where it is located, basically inside a deep wooded area. 
and it just doesn't seem to add up here. My skeptical side wants to think it's something related to a searcher project. That is the easiest explanation here for sure. And it's still very, very possible that's what it is. But right now, it's just not all kind of adding up. Uh, I don't know. At the end of the episode, at the end of episode seven here, I really didn't know what to make of all this. I mean, I wasn't convinced by any means that this was related to some underground buried treasure, but what could it be? Anyway, by the end of episode eight, I wasn't much closer to answering that question, but we'll get to that in just a bit. All right, so let's move now on to Season 8, Episode 8 of The Curse of Oak Island called High on the Bog. It occurs to me that maybe my constant complaining about the eye-rolling puns used for naming these episodes might actually be spurring on whoever is doing this to come up with more and even worse puns. Maybe you should stop complaining. That's right, folks. I'm convinced Prometheus is listening to this podcast. At least that's what I like to tell myself sometimes. Anyway, and let's start this episode review where we ended off episode 7 at this Serpent Mound feature on Lot 15. Archaeologist Aaron Taylor is now joined by another archaeologist, Miriam Amaralt, and they're just beginning to dig on this feature. Being a Star Wars fanatic, I just want to point out how I love that Taylor is wearing a Stormtrooper's t-shirt here. <laughs> anyway, what are we seeing in this ep- what we're seeing in this episode is really just the beginning of all this. I mean, they're literally just scratching the surface, quite literally. Taylor finds some charcoal in the dirt and tells us the charcoal can be dated, and that will at least give us some idea of a time frame connected to this feature. I'm sure we'll have much more on this in the coming weeks, but for now, it's all we really get. And I'll say this again, I'm fascinated by this feature. I have no earthly clue what it could be, but the fact that charcoal was found does at least seem to hint it's not some kind of natural formation. Anyway, exciting stuff. The episode begins, actually, with another video meeting in the war room with researcher Aaron Helton, who a couple of weeks ago was called a was called by the narrator a geographic information systems expert, then last week became a cartographer, but for some reason she's back this week to being a geographic information systems expert. I, I, again, I, I, don't, I don't think that means anything. I'm just interested by the inconsistency. Anyway, now they're telling us that... Um, what we're seeing here is a completely separate meeting from the others we've seen in past episodes, that this is after their first conversations we saw and after the team kind of searched on some of her research targets. I don't know. Is it really? Because she seems to be wearing the same thing. I, I don't know. Let's not get bogged down in all that. Anyway, Helton is working with the famous Templar map found by Zena Halpern. And specifically today, she's working with something called La Formulae. So let's stop here and talk about what that is for a second. As the story goes, it's been a while since I read the book. In 2011, Zena Halpern and her friend Don Raw were looking through a very old book called, and again, my memory is sketchy, but I think I have this right, something like Palestine Before the Hebrews. It's an old ancient, you know, ancient is the wrong word, but an antique book. As they read through it, they felt something out of place about the back cover, like as if the cover had something stuffed inside of it. So they took a knife, sliced it open, and out came this map that we always see on the show. And with it what looked like this fragment of paper with strange symbols on it, which had the title La Formulae written across the top. It was clearly a coded cipher of some kind, and luckily, whoever wrote this La Formulae appears to have used the exact same coding method as the one apparently found on the 90-foot stone. Now, remember, the 90-foot stone, which no one can find and which no one took an actual copy of what was written on it. But I digress. 
As you can tell, folks, it is really hard for me here to hide my cynicism about this whole theory. Thankfully, it appears it is difficult for Marty Lagina as well to hide his cynicism on this whole theory, since we heard him begin his commentary on Aaron Helton's theory in this episode by saying, quote, if you accept that the Xena Halpern map is real, end quote. It's important to keep that in mind. What you're getting with with uh, Marty here is just a hint, and we only ever get hints, hint into the fact that the actual origin of Xena Halpern's map, the legitimacy of the map is constantly in question. And the problem is, I don't accept that it's real. So let me say this. I'm not saying I'm completely convinced it's fake, but I'm not convinced it's real. Please keep in mind that I'm a podcaster. I'm not a researcher or a historian. If you believe in the Halpern theory, if you believe in the genuine origin of this map, I'm happy to discuss it with you, and I'm always open to being convinced. So send me an email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Prove me wrong. Also, it would be unfair of me not to point out that Rick Lagina does seem pretty convinced. In fact, we're going to mention that later again. So, you know, really, what do I know? Anyway, Helton believes the Halpern map and the cipher, La Formulae, tells her the team should not be looking for the treasure in the money pit. She believes the money pit is, quote, an entrance, a booby-trapped entrance, end quote, to an underground corridor, which, if my calculations are correct, extends something like 1,587 feet from the original pit to where the treasure vault can be found, specifically under the furthest west stone of Nolan's cross, the base of the cross, which they call Cone E here in this show. Her research suggests the cipher indicates this corridor to the treasure, begins at a site in the money pit area, moves in sort of a north-northwesterly direction, 522 feet, makes a 45-degree turn to the west in a slight southerly direction, and then extends another 1,065 feet to the vault, which is under Cone E. Now, let me say this. There are obvious holes in the logic as it is presented here on the show. For instance, at one point, she says something like, quote, I personally believe it goes in this direction, end quote. Now, if I've learned nothing else from doing this podcast, it is that the editors of the show are not very good at presenting the evidence and details critical to how these theorists came up with their theories. So let me extend that very same leeway to Helton that I do for all the theorists. I'm fairly certain there is much more to her logic and train of thought here than just I personally think. She also advises the team not to drill down directly into this vault, directly under Coney, I guess, as that might trip another booby trap, much the same as drilling down directly in the money pit did centuries ago. Instead, she advises them to look for this corridor in the money pit area, giving them coordinates where to dig. And then they can follow this corridor all the way to the treasure vault. The next day, Rick heads over to the money pit with Charles Barkhouse, where they're they're directing the choice drilling guys to start working on this new target that Helton has provided for them. A borehole they're now calling EJZ-1. <laughs> there is an interesting little scene here, I think, where Rick asks Charles what he thinks of all this. Now, I might be reading the tea leaves a bit here, but Charles did seem to me to be, oh, I don't know, a little hesitant with his answer. I watched it several times, and he does seem to just sort of pause and maybe even smirk a bit before saying something like, let's go get it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Charles does point out that no one has ever really looked in this area of the money pit, which to be specific is like sort of the northwestern corner of the kind of now cleared out area around the famous old treasure shaft. 
So if nothing else, they're drilling in an area where they don't expect to find old searcher shafts or searcher tools or any of that sort of thing. Later in the show, Terry Matheson is examining some of the samples from EJZ1, and there's no sense in sugarcoating it here, folks, but they come up with nothing. Terry says everything they're finding looks natural, and there is no evidence of any corridor or any work at all, really. It's at this point we get this absolutely fascinating scene, which I alluded to earlier. Rick admits to Terry, Charles, and Steve Guptill, who's also on the scene, that he is emotionally tied to this theory, to proving his old friend Zena Halpern correct. It's a telling admission from Rick. You know, it's easy to forget that these guys are human, just like the rest of us, and emotions can sometimes drive their decisions, much like it can for each and every one of us. Charles, Terry, and Steve give really what kind of looks like sort of the most optimistic opinion they could come up with, really for Rick's sake, that perhaps Helton was just a bit off in her calculations. Maybe she had the original money pit calculation wrong, and that would throw everything off. So they call Helton up and essentially send her back to her maps, and for a second there, it sounded like she was ready to get good news and then got really the worst of news. The narrator ends the scene by saying that Helton, uh, that, quote, they will now wait until she can calculate a new drilling location. Let me wrap up this portion of the show by saying this again. I will admit, I think this is a fool's errand. In my mind, this is a big investment in time and money with literally nothing to base it all on. But we need to remain open-minded, and so do I. And we need to keep in mind, we need to remember, Rick Lagina truly believes in it, and he has done more (laughs) on this treasure hunt and looked into her research than any of us have. I'm sorry, he has. So for his sake, I hope that I'm going to be the one proved wrong. Okay, so let's head now over to the Oak Island Research Center, where the team is meeting with Sandy Campbell. This is a new person on the show. He's a numismatist from Nova Scotia. So what is a numismatist, other than a really difficult thing to say on a a podcast? Um, I'll be honest, I didn't know really before today. I mean, I had an idea, but I wasn't sure what it was, so (laughs) there you go. And now, at the risk of making it sound simplistic, it's basically a fancy name for a coin collector. Or more precisely, it's someone who specializes in numismatics, which basically means money, coins mostly, but also paper currency or anything like that. Anything really that could have been used by people as currency. Campbell is here to look at the coin with a square hole in it Gary Drayton found earlier this season. He looks at it with his magnifying glass and quickly, without hesitation, calls it a Chinese cash coin. In fact, He says exactly it, quote, clearly is a Chinese cash coin. He uses the word clearly here, and that implies, at least to me, that he thinks any idea this could be anything but a Chinese cash coin is downright preposterous. Everyone is very excited about this. They even call Gary Drayton down for what seems to be no other reason than to see his characteristically excited and entertaining reaction to the news. To get everyone even, I guess, a little more worked up, Campbell says it could be 1,100 years old or even older, and then later offers a date range of anywhere from 400 B.C. to 900 A.D. And that, (laughs) when I heard that, that date range there, that's what made me kind of pause the show and really kind of sit and think about it for a second. I mean, wow, that is a huge time frame to offer up. 
Now, he doesn't say exactly why it would have to be at least as old as 900 AD, although now that I think of it, uh, maybe he was basing that on sort of the thickness of the edging or something like that. I'm not really sure. Something in the way it was made. But 400 BC is when cash coins actually sort of originated. So that's where that date comes from. So why can't this expert, this coin specialist, date this coin even just a bit more accurately than that? I mean, (laughs) can we get it down to 500-year range? Well, I don't really know why he can't, but my best guess is that he can't do that because he can't really tell us anything about it at all, other than it looks like an old Chinese cash coin. We can see no markings that would date it, or even anything that actually confirms it is Chinese, or even a coin for that matter. Now, this is his line of work, and I'm not looking at this object myself firsthand, so I don't want to sound like I think he's full of baloney here or anything, but man, oh man, there's a lot of holes, no pun intended, in this analysis. Also, keep in mind what I mentioned in a previous podcast about very, very similar objects being found on Oak Island years ago, not too many years ago, but a few years ago, by the man who owns Lot 5 over on the northwestern side of the island. Now, folks, unfortunately, since I pointed you towards the Lot 5 website, a couple of weeks back, which really I think was just oakislandlot5.com, it appears that the website has either been taken down or the domain expired. I'm not going to say that has anything to do with us mentioning on the show because this was up forever. Um, something happened here. So if you haven't had the chance to look at it already, and like I said, the site was up for years and years, so many people have seen these things. Uh, you're just going to have to take my word for it here on this for now. If it comes back, I'll certainly let you know. But when it was active and his page marked The Finds, he had more than one round coin-sized object with a square hole in it. So if for everyone to jump up and down here, like they just found the most incredible thing ever discovered on Oak Island is, I don't know, premature, I think, to say the least. The question comes around to how this could have ended up on Oak Island. Campbell says he believes the coin, quote-unquote, landed here as a pocket piece. Now, he's obviously just guessing at that, but I think that's a very reasonable guess. Much more reasonable than it was part of some Templar treasure or some unknown Chinese explorer sailed to Nova Scotia before the 9th century. It's also a good guess because even though these coins have really relatively limited value now since there were millions and millions of them made for centuries. I mean, people used to string them up hundreds at a time. So they really were ubiquitous in their day. You can buy one on eBay for just a few bucks. But these coins were often also used for superstitious reasons as well as for money. Over the centuries, they were thought to have, oh God, things like healing powers or religious implications. I think they were even used for fortune telling. More popularly, they were carried around as a good luck charm, you know. So like I said, Campbell's theory on how it got here is a good one and a very reasonable one. It also makes this discovery seem a whole lot less interesting, doesn't it? I mean, even if Campbell is correct, and this is indeed a centuries-old Chinese cash coin and not something else, what does that mean exactly for the Oak Island treasure hunt? (laughs) Most likely, it means absolutely nothing. It adds nothing to the story as far as I can tell. When you take also into consideration with this discovery the items found on Lot 5, It seems kind of pretty obvious to me that someone who lived in Oak Island, whether it be in 1790 or 1990, had a collection of these ancient coins, these antique coins, and walked around with one or more in his pocket or his or her pocket like it was a good luck charm. It's like so many millions of others have done throughout the world over the centuries. At some point, inevitably, he or she dropped one or two on the ground. 
That's it. That's all. Until we know more, like actually confirming some Chinese writing or scientifically dating it. This discovery, while very cool, I have to admit that, is generally, I mean, as far as I can tell, unimportant to the goal of answering the mysteries of Oak Island. Okay, this marathon podcast is almost done. Let's conclude over at the swamp, specifically the southeast corner of the swamp. Now, to just briefly review, during the off-season, the swamp doctor saw something strange in an old aerial photos, or maybe more than one photo there, of this of this part of the swamp. He rode out there with an inflatable boat and probed down uh, below the muck and hit what he thought felt like perhaps something like a stone floor. So now the team is draining the swamp to get a better look, which takes some time. And so in the meantime, as it's being drained, Gary Drayton, along with Peter Fernetti on the shovel, uh, is starting to metal detect in the areas that are drying out. I believe this is a new area since the swamp is being drained here, and it did look kind of wet, but it's also over by where this supposed Chinese cash coin was found, just to kind of give you a little more perspective on this. If you look at the swamp from overhead, they are in the far bottom right corner, just steps from the road. Gary gets a hit on his detector, and Peter starts digging whatever this is they found out of the ground. And at this point, they come across a piece of wood, which even at first glance was clearly, I don't know, maybe hand cut or perhaps a milled piece of wood, meaning it wasn't a root or an old buried tree branch or something like that. Now, this was lumber. And when I paused the video, it certainly looked, at least at first blush, hand cut to me and not mechanically milled or cut by a table saw, you know, something like that. He then finds another piece of lumber, and then another, until they realize they're onto something man-made that really shouldn't be here. Gary points out that one piece was notched out or cut so that it could lay on top of the other. So what we have here is certainly, you know, a man-made structure of some sort. Gary, like any good Oak Island enthusiast, first thinks they might be on top of a shaft. But that will change in just a second. They make the compulsory speakerphone call to Rick Lagina and also to archaeologist Laird Niven to come down and take a look. Gary mentions that Laird might want them to stop digging here, meaning he might want them to uncover whatever this is in the more deliberate way those dreaded archaeologists like to do, rather than just kind of hacking at it with an excavator. When Laird arrives, he thinks this looks like an old slipway to him rather than a shaft. Later, Gary points out that the metal he was detecting that caused him to dig here was actually iron fasteners of some kind holding the structure together. Now, when we say slipway, I think we immediately think of the, slip, the slipway uncovered in Smith's Cove a couple of seasons back. But correct me if I'm wrong here, wasn't one of the strangest features about that particular slipway the fact that it did not have any iron fasteners? So it seemed this is something different, perhaps built for a different purpose and by different people, maybe. Who knows? The episode ends with a war room discussion over how to proceed with this structure. And truth be told, it all seemed a bit premature to me, at least as far as the viewer is concerned, right? We learn next to nothing about what this might be, other than the simple fact that one would not expect to find something like this underground in a swamp. With that in mind, I'm kind of hesitant to say too much about it. Since we know so little, other than a few images and a couple of sentences from these guys, you know, who are looking at it. But hey, I can't help myself. It's, it's a podcast, right? <laughs> Let me just throw one idea up the flagpole and see who salutes it. If this is a war for a slipway, and that is a big if, this is, I don't know, not the place I would expect to find it. And let me explain what I mean. 
As we all know, ocean levels have risen quite a bit over the last few centuries. The shoreline of Oak Island was further out to sea than what we know now, meaning the beach in the 1700s is now underwater. That's where one would expect, I would think, to find an old wharf, just like they did in Smith's Cove. But to find one further inland? It just seems a bit more perplexing to me. Unless you subscribe to the theory that the swamp was once a channel between two islands. Anyway, that's enough blind speculation for me today. So, folks, that's going to finally do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, I have another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions, where my friend Chris Poe and I discuss uh, politics, beer, we've discussed UFOs, basically anything two guys might find themselves discussing while sitting down at a pub for a pint or two, which was the whole point. We were going to record this at some of our favorite pubs, but then they all closed. Uh, Anyway, just search Sit Downs and Sessions on uh, Apple Podcasts and subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to subscribe to this show if you don't already, um, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy listening to our little show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Helps get word out on us and bring more listeners to the show. And I thank every one of you who has taken the time to do that already. I really do appreciate the ratings and the five-star and the kind words about all this. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. little warning, keep in mind, if you send me an email or a message, I might just answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the listening audience, you're going to need to make a little note of that for me. So I just respond to you via email. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. Give us a like or a follow there. It'd be much appreciated. It's a great way to follow the podcast and to interact with other listeners of the show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.